dogs out? Who let the 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 dogs out? Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. Somebody who I think is kind of a broader part of the Michael and Us cosmos, who we haven't visited in a while, is the original Six Dad, Norm Kelly. Your predecessor. uh, Before I dethroned him. Assumed the mantle. Highlander style. (laughs) You know, I hadn't thought much about him ever since he lost re-election, but I saw one of his tweets today. His Twitter account keeps going zombified like Dr. Mabuza, <laughs> even though he himself is dead. Because <laughs> I thought, you know, after Norm Kelly stopped being a city councillor, he would just say, why am I still paying the bill on this Twitter account, right? Why, why am I still doing dank memes? Well, it's uh, like that movie uh, Perfect Blue, which you've seen, right? Where the I actually where, still have. Oh, you've never seen it? Okay, yeah. well, uh, without spoiling, which, by the way, unironically great movie. Yeah. You know, this young woman, her avatar uh, as a celebrity kind of like splits away from her personality and just takes on its own. Like it becomes an autonomous being and it like chases her down the street. <laughs> That's what I imagine uh, Norm Kelly's life is now. Well, I saw somebody boost one of his tweets where it just says, lunch at the desk today <laughs> on its own obviously not one of his best but the <laughs> what's really funny about it to me is well where is this desk uh-huh. is it at his home because that's where he sure his sure is hell and at city hall i mean we should just really quickly for people that haven't been listening to the show since kind of season two especially for american listeners uh norm kelly is a, f- a former deputy mayor of toronto former Toronto city councillor, somebody throughout his career very much on the right of politics, but somebody who kind of took on a second life because, I mean, it all started with a tweet, as most things of significance these days do. Well, I think an important prologue to this is the fact that he was Rob Ford's deputy mayor, and he became Rob Ford's deputy mayor after the other deputy mayor got the hell out of there during the crack scan. Uh Uh-huh. When Rob had to go to rehab, Norm Kelly took over as sort of the acting mayor for a little while, and he earned a lot of uh, admiration, I guess, from across the spectrum. I, I guess uh, for for his conciliatory and right. if you're, if non-ideological. If you're writing, if Time Magazine wrote a take <laughs> on this, that's what it would be. Let's put it that way. Then there was the tweet where what was it? Meek Mill said something mean about Drake. Yeah. And if you know anything about Toronto, you know that Drake is Toronto's favorite son. Yeah. And then Norm Kelly allegedly, his Twitter account quote tweeted it and said, "Stay out of Toronto. Right, you're you're not welcome here, yeah. Meek Mill." I mean, now what's the truth behind this tweet? Well, I mean, there's a rumor. I mean, I don't have any inside information to this effect. This is pure speculation uh, in case Norm's listening. I don't know. But the rumor is that uh, a staffer meant to tweet that at Meek Mill and accidentally did it from uh, Norm's account. And because the tweet went viral... I think really viral too, like possibly hundreds of thousands of retweets. It was really big. The rumor is they just decided to lean into that. And so Kelly just became like at norm became a character basically. And he became the the rapping grandpa of Toronto politics. And it really was insufferable. I mean, it's the joke was kind of that, you know, he's a he's a politician and he's old and he's going to put on a suit and tie and be serious and talk about the budget, but he's going to tweet, you know, empty feel goodisms every morning like he's going to tweet happy monday and get like 50,000 retweets for it. I mean, his main thing, the thing that made him really popular was that he would tweet a lot about 
rap. You know, there'd be like a picture of him with his earbuds in and it'd be like, Drake just dropped his new album. Yeah, wow. uh, and I think it climaxed with him and Drake uh, rapping together at Ryerson that time. Do you remember that famous incident? Mercifully, I don't remember that. You know, since it obviously wasn't Norm Kelly writing these tweets, he always had this kind of like deer in the headlights look anytime he had to make a public appearance <laughs> or anytime he was next to a rapper. He's still tweeting after losing his seat. You know, he's like an anti-refugee, like pro-cop kind of right He was a climate, climate change denier. And in fact, years ago, before the professionals took over his Twitter account, account his twitter would just be incoherent and badly spelled and it would say things like um albert knobs would glenn close win best actor or best actress question mark with five misspellings in it you know he may have lost but the six dad is an idea and you can't kill an idea yeah as uh, as the great tommy douglas once said you can lock up a mouse or a man but you can't lock up an idea so what i really wanted to find to watch today was uh a film about the 2008 Democratic primaries. Uh, I don't know why exactly I particularly want to revisit that affair because it was quite unpleasant. Uh, in fact, maybe that's why I want to revisit it. Um, I was speaking with Bronco, who was our guest on uh, on the Patreon episode uh, last week. Uh, he and I were talking. We went down this whole rabbit hole the other night talking about all the ugliness that inflected the, the Clinton-Obama contest. People forget they really hated each other. <laughs> And uh, their primary in terms of ugliness vastly outstripped 2016. Anyways, unfortunately, we couldn't find that. If anybody has a hot tip on whether such a documentary exists, I'd love to hear about it. Perhaps we'll have to go for something a little more outside the box, like an episode of The Daily Show or a debate. Remember there was that one debate... It was a Democratic debate that was part of that news cycle about Obama allegedly wasn't wearing an American flag lapel pin enough, and that's basically all they talked about. I, I just want an excuse to revisit those clips of Hillary, you know, where she has to sort of defend why her campaign staff released this photo of Obama in, like, Kenyan garb or whatever. But, you know, I don't know. For some reason, I was itching for something like that. Um, and we couldn't find it. But what we did find is uh, something about an even more generic and boring uh, subject concerns, concerned with U.S. politics, squarely in our wheelhouse. And by our wheelhouse, I mean this thing we do inexplicably where we watch uh, things that piss us off and are just incredibly tedious sits uh, <laughs> and that we you know, have to invent new forms of hyperbole with which to express our disgust and boredom at. Well, okay, so the movie we watched is <laughs> Met, the Netflix documentary. This one is on Netflix. This wasn't some obscure thing we had to hunt down. This You can, you can get this one in your own living room, folks. I just can't believe you're going to lose. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think you say in a concession speech? By the way, someone have a number for the president? I do. Okay. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. And if you don't win, we'll still love you. Uh, the, <laughs> the country may think of you as a laughing stock, and we'll know the truth, and that's okay. This is a very different setting than any of the debates we've held so far. A dining room conversation is among members of the family. These are all people competing for the same job. How in the world do we find these things out on the day of the debate? He hates to disappoint. A recent poll said that 43% of Americans are not even sure who you are. The flipping Mormon. <laughs> How did you feel on the stage? I was dying. I would not want to do this again. It's too much. And this was the one that I think almost broke me. This is the <laughs> one where I, I thought, 
I've seen so many of these documentaries about that are unfiltered inside glimpses of a middling politician kind of a a mediocrity where the thesis is you know behind the glare of the lights there's actually a person here and imagine if you were imagine if you were in this situation and isn't politics all theater and you know politics what a concept uh, and I'm, I'm so tired of it. When we started watching it, I knew there would be that generic scene where Mitt is in the makeup chair being made up. Yeah, and it was like, right, it was just, a, you know, 20 or 30 minutes into the movie. Or there'd be that generic scene where Mitt is doing a TV interview, and then it cuts to behind the set where you see how artificial the construction is, and you're supposed to be like, oh, we're really behind the scenes here. Th- this type of movie just uh, relishes... You know, this very unconvincing deconstruction of the fourth wall. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like, look at we're showing you, you know, you know, behind behind what you see on your TV screen. But of course, uh, everything we see, I mean, the Romneys know that they're on camera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, honestly, even if they didn't, they're not very interesting people. Well, uh, you know not... me. Uh, I am very interested in politics. I like to watch the news. I'm interested in the horse race. You know, I think that politicians are intrinsically interesting people. And I also think they're intrinsically good people. So I'm the target audience for this film. I have no ideology as such. Well, I, I beg to differ. See, that's your smarty pants, like film guy reason for liking this movie. My reason for liking it is that I'm very passionate about small government. Um, And, you know, I just think what the United States government has been missing uh, generation after generation, the missing piece in in a project, in in an otherwise perfect union, is private sector experience. And and Mitt's got it. He says so right in in the movie several times. Well, let me clarify my earlier stance. Uh, while I vote Democrat, because my parents voted Democrat and their parents before them did too. You're so, more of a blue dog so, kind, so, though. I mean, that that's my team. <laughs> I still respect the other side. And when I when I see this guy with his strong business experience, giving giving the you know the the true conservative point of view, not the braying mobs, but the the real reasonable conservative point of view, you know, I feel enlightened by this. And you know, you know, frankly, watching this documentary it just takes me back to an, another kind of republicanism. You know, a, a classier kind. Uh, a, a, a kind that went tobogganing with their kids. Incidentally, uh, a figure that does not appear in this film is Donald Trump, which is... Well, Donald Trump doesn't associate with losers. <laughs> well, because, you know, the kind of last third of the film is all about uh, Romney's 2012 run for president. I won't spoil it by telling you how that ends. But um, <laughs> And, you know, Trump, of course, was very much in the orbit of that campaign. And uh, guess what? He doesn't appear in the movie. This is an extremely airbrushed piece of filmmaking. Weirdly, much of it, you know, it actually worked better for the podcast than I thought, uh, despite the fact that everything Will just said about it being boring is uh, unfortunately all too true. But it was more appropriate for our podcast than I thought, because much of it was actually about 2008. A weird chunk of it, like the majority of it, probably? Uh, well, the, probably the first half. Mm-hmm. I'll walk the listeners through the structure of the documentary. Ah, but no spoilers, because people like to... Don't tell them how 2008 ended. So it starts, you know, like Goodfellas, where it's a scene later in the movie, and, <laughs> and he's on election night 2012, and that's like, well, how did we get here? And then it goes all the way back to 2006. Mitt's out there with his family, with his kids, uh, Tag and Skip and uh, John Boy and Doc... <laughs> And they're all out there, uh, Mitt Jr. the third, tobogganing and having fun in the lily white snow. 
the only thing whiter than they are. <laughs> He's just an, an ordinary salt of the earth guy, but he decides feels a biting wind on his face, and what it is is the is the the call of public service. That, that's the winds of change, <laughs> and God, in fact, God Himself is calling on him to run. You know, there's a reason God stopped in Utah on his way to heaven. Let's just put it that way. So the next scene, we see Mitt surrounded by his family, just about to launch his 2008 run. Um, and, you know, they have a nice, easy chemistry, I would say. The film hasn't bothered to mention, of course, that Mitt Romney had been already governor of a major American state. Because the scene, and it really is just, it is a scene. It's mm-hmm. very staged. The point of it is kind of like, Dad, do you really want to do this? I mean, let's talk about the pros and cons of this as a family. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to be be cynical and say this is not the, the moment that Mitt Romney decided whether he was going to run for president. The 2008 run plays much like the 2012 run. Uh, a lot of being in hotel rooms, a lot of... Uh, That's most of the movie. Half-drunk bottles of Coke uh-huh. around them while they talk about, well, gee shucks, I don't, I don't know if we got, we got to come out hard on the next debate. And I sure hope the voters can understand my, you know, these very spontaneous conversations they're having. <laughs> why, why, geez, do you remember when I started Bain Capital? And- <laughs> I lo- yeah, I love that that's the conversation he's having with his wife. Is, is like, oh, the conversations that Mitt Romney has with his family in this movie, I mean, admittedly, you know, staged as they are, just sound like a politician trying to give a stump speech. It's so embarrassing. Okay, so I, I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit of <laughs> yeah, the plot. Yeah. Uh, right before his first debate with Obama in 2012, he's just hanging out with his family in the hotel room, and his wife is asking him, God, you know, don't those Democrats understand that us, <laughs> when they implement these taxes, they think they're going after the big guys, but what they're really hurting are the small businesses. And then Romney says, well, no, they don't understand because they've never been there. Why? You know, you remember when Bain Capital started and it was, just, <laughs> you know, just a totally spontaneous conversation that these two are having for the very first time, uh, like 10 months into their campaign. I, I guess the galactic brain... Uh, you know, take on this scene is actually that that they didn't know the camera was on, and that's just what they sound like <laughs> when they talk. Which I also wouldn't have a hard time believing. Uh, what struck me most is that uh, you know, so this is a film which almost exclusively consists of the Romneys in hotel rooms, and it is like the world's oh, yeah. worst, like longest and most tedious family vacation. Basically, <laughs> it's like uh, you know the the McAllisters from Home Alone in their later in their later years. It's impossible to tell where the Romney family stops and kind of the spouses and then the political aides begin. It's just this kind of mm. morass of, you know, well-groomed, rich white people. It's mm. impossible to tell. And you astutely observed that the film never really conveys the scope of the campaign. Well, no, this is what I was going to say. Like, with the exception of a few kind of moments where you see him at a rally or when he's getting off an airplane... There are almost no crowds in this movie, or even sometimes when there are crowds, it's just that small crowd that's behind a politician when they're speaking on a stage. If you didn't have the context for this, this could be a film about a mayoral race in like a mid-size American town. Also because the other half of the movie, in addition to the hotel room scenes, the just endless identical hotel room scenes, most of which are just them reacting to losing, which is also great. (laughs) Well, gee whiz, I don't know if we're going to make it through this one. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the other stuff is just kind of generic clips from CNN and spin doctors talking and people doing, you know, analyses and in the way that, you know, cable news people do. And what's so funny to me is that 
the Romneys in all their conversations, they experience politics like any viewer of cable news experiences it. Like they've internalized all the same bullshit about polling and they're total nerds for like they're just political junkies. They're nerds for all the Nate Silver bullshit. They they too see politics just as an artifice. Mm-hmm. Even when Mitt Romney is talking about stuff he ostensibly cares about, you know, like I don't know, business. Business and whatever. It's mostly him talking in this kind of very removed way about how he has credibility to talk about business or whatever. There's no there there. There's an extended scene, for example, after the foreign policy debate that he and Obama had, where Romney was perceived, you know, what even fucking was this thing they were arguing over? It was Romney went after Obama for uh, not calling Benghazi an act of terror quickly enough. Right. And then Obama contradicted him, and then Romney was caught by the moderator saying something that according to the moderator was factually untrue, which is that Obama had waited several days or something to call this an act of terror. Totally stupid kind of thing that passes for a exciting moment in American political debate. But then, you know, longer than this actual scene of the debate happening is the Romney family reacting to it. And it's just Mitt complaining to, you know, the 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 assembled mini Mitts and others that, you know, that he was being treated unfairly. It's him deconstructing his own words, you know, point by point what he said. And it's just incredible to me that anybody that dedicates this much of, you know, their time and their life to something like this, that this is how shallow their own perception of it is. You know, this this movie currently has 83% on Rotten Tomatoes, Uh like all of these awful documentaries do. Yeah. Um, And, you know... Obama the final year, also on Netflix. Also awful. The critical consensus is basically... I mean, the An cr- intimate portrait of the best uh, Republican president America never had. As with all Rotten Tomatoes critical consensuses, it might as well have just come from the press release. Everyone seems to agree that, well, you know, it offers a, a humanizing portrait uh, of him. It, it shows God. a different side. And God, wasn't, that, that, wasn't that what Ebert said about the Travolta character in Primary Colors? Or <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If this is the humanized Mitt Romney, there there is no human there. Yeah. There's, these people are just... So boring to spend all this You know what time else with? this movie does, which which the Obama the final year thing, I believe we also called it out uh, for this. Um, if people haven't heard that, that's on Patreon. Uh, Nathan Robinson was our guest. It was a few months ago. The film is full of these moments that are supposed to show how, you know, politics is a grind. And uh, so this film, uh, the Romney movie is full of uh, they're sleeping on an airplane and they're, oh, look at them. They're these rich people, but they're eating food out of, out of plastic containers, God you know? Damn. Look at that uh, half-drunken cup of coffee because campaigns are caffeine-fueled. The Obama The Final Year documentary had that ridiculous scene where his speechwriter uh, is uh, drafting that speech he's going to go give at the Hiroshima Memorial or yeah. whatever. And then it cuts to just his garbage can it's just full of starbucks cups oh man so my actual favorite moment of this romney documentary Uh was at the end of his 2008 campaign where we see him at his home sitting by his computer writing his speech his his concession speech so he's at his computer writing this speech which of course he wrote himself you know just just from his own that's right from From, his own heart yeah and then it cuts to him sitting in his kitchen with with like a notepad and he's writing it by hand 
and you know it's artfully framed with like a, a vase of flowers <laughs> on the table in front of him and yeah that, the uh, composition of the shot is perfect and it's made it's one of those things where it's made to look like he's the only person in the room even though there's clearly a camera crew there and then it keeps cutting to him like pacing around the room or sitting in different positions as he's writing this but you know a true you know unfiltered fly on the wall documentary true true cinema verite he's he's you know he's thinking about his place in history <laughs> yeah <laughs> but also in the kind of like modest humble settings of his own living room you know because he stays connected to what's important it is funny how the romneys who are quite rich just we see kind of multiple romney you know mm-hmm. facilities shall we say mm-hmm. in this in this movie um it just looks like they shop at you know whatever the millionaire equivalent of ikea is oh yeah you know it's this kind of modular rustic design they don't they don't have a lot of art on the walls they just have pictures of like they have all these identical pictures of their identical looking children yeah they have uh, oil paintings of their children in <laughs> fact you remember that shot <laughs> i remember reading shortly after the election you know the first time that mitt and his wife were seen out in public was they went to go see whatever twilight movie was playing at that time which you know the author of twilight is a mormon so i guess that's what got them out mm-hmm. but that and everything else we see of them in this movie just goes to show the banality of your taste even when you're especially when you're rich i mean i think uh i mean twilight that's probably like that's like rated r it's pretty sexy stuff yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> sitting presidents have a very hard time in these debates, George Herbert Walker did, George W. did, it, every, because they feel like, who is this whippersnapper coming up here that knows nothing? I've been president, I'm president of the United States, I've been all the world, I meet with world leaders, I'm commander in chief, I know all these things I've been doing, and then they come in, you know, these, this, and so they don't prepare, they don't prepare, and they just think they could just waltz through it. Because they've it, done the job. Because they've done the job. Four and years they know everything. Then they get crushed in the first debate, as George W. did, as George Herbert Walker. And then they come back. I don't think prepared. they got crushed as badly as he got crushed. No, I think, I think you're right. I think Kerry barely won the first debate with George. And even in that debate, George Bush came across as more trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Kerry, looked, Kerry always looks pedantic. We'll, we will remind you of that fact four years from now. I was disappointed with this documentary just on the level of like telling the story of the 2012 campaign. It, it hits certain expected beats like the 47% speech and the first debate that he famously won. Um, but it misses out on a lot of other stuff. Hurricane Katrina is, if it's mentioned, I missed it. I think at one point you see him wearing like a disaster relief one of those windbreakers or something. I mean, many many argued that that's what swung the election for Obama, and you definitely don't get any sense of its. Um, you don't get any sense of what the election is about at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, you don't even know who his running mate is until like Paul Ryan appears. He's just like, "Hey guys!" At, like on election day, and yeah, as I said, Donald Trump nowhere nowhere present in it at all. Well, the scene we see at the RNC. We see him, you know, in the hallway before going out to do his speech, you know, like he like he's Rocky about to go do a fight. Yeah. And of course, there's no mention of the fact that right before that, there was Clint Eastwood talking to a chair, <laughs> which I think was the thing that really dominated if people's If anyone mem- remembers something about the RNC, it's it, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, I mean, does anyone remember a single line from Romney's speech? I'm guessing uh, I, not. I remember a single line. Uh-huh, it was, go ahead. The president wants to stop the rising of the oceans. I want to give your, you and your family a job. Or something, <laughs> it was something along those lines. Well, a great, a great piece of oratory, I'm sure. But the film has a kind of a claustrophobic quality because mm-hmm. you're mostly just in hotel rooms with the Romneys. You know what it kind of reminds me of is that Rolling Stones kind of a pirate 
documentary that's actually very good, uh, Cocksucker Blues. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where, where you see the Stones playing live, but then a lot of what you see is just the banality of like people being strung out in hotel rooms and stuff. Then again, I don't even know why that comes to mind because that's actually good and this this most <laughs> certainly was not. But it's it's kind of trying to do that. It, it's in the mold of, uh, you know, something like The War Room, which we talked about in a previous episode. You know, it's the D.A. Pennebaker style of just kind of observing and assuming that's interesting. So contra, you know, the other side of the continuum, which is the kind of Michael Moore everyman narration where the, the filmmaker really inserts themselves into the movie. But that honestly might have been more fun because then we might have got some editorial content. This doesn't really tell us anything about Mitt Romney at all. It's too sanitized. The War Room will show you moments like... George Stephanopoulos running around after the debate going, George Bush was weak. George Bush was weak. George Bush was weak. And then it'll cut to him on CNN saying, people are saying George Bush was weak during the debate. <laughs> this documentary would never show you anything like that about Mitt. You know, it reminded you of Cocksucker Blues. It reminded me a bit of one of those Cool Duder videos where <laughs> uh, Cool Duder and Wet Movie are like vacationing in Las Vegas. But you don't see anything interesting of Las Vegas. You see them go to a 7-Eleven and you see them go to a gas station and a DVD store. There was a good 40 seconds of this movie that was just... The sequence was a bunch of the Romney children opening the balcony door of their hotel room, going out onto the balcony and kind of just briefly overlooking whatever kind of, you know, exurban hellscape they happened to Mm -hmm. be perched over that day. And yeah, that doesn't really tell us anything, does it? Mm -hmm. It's entirely banal. And I guess the film thinks that showing you those behind the scenes, those kind of quotidian moments of the campaign are exciting, but they're really not. Mm -hmm. And if you think that this movie humanizes Mitt Romney, if you think this shows you a different side of Mitt Romney that you didn't see on the campaign trail, what were you watching during the 2012 election? He's exactly the same man. What I really liked is, so I, you know, I unfortunately am going to have to spoil the end. Uh, Romney loses. Uh, you Too know. bad. <laughs> we could have used a businessman at the helm. Yeah. So, but you know, we got one. <laughs> yeah, we waited four years, then we got the real thing. Someone who's not a loser. <laughs> but they're all sitting around in the in the hotel room in, in kind of the penultimate scene. And, you know, Romney famously waited a few hours to concede. And so they're all just kind of on their laptops, looking at their phones, processing the results, becoming increasingly dispirited. Then we get the closest thing Mitt Romney makes to an actual political or kind of ideological comment. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the entire movie. It comes close. He he says something like, I just think that uh, what's going to happen is we're going to go the way of, of so many great nations in the past where, you know, we just keep raising the taxes and, and just giving people free stuff and we run up the debt. And uh, I love that, you know, Mitt Romney, who has actually debated Barack Obama, who has some kind of a personal relationship with him, just has the most generic opinion of kind of you know, Obama liberalism that any person calling into like a right wing talk show would have or something. He just thinks Obama's tepid liberalism. Ah, yes. You know, this was how ancient Rome fell. And and Mitt Romney is just not an interesting person. <laughs> Mitt Romney has a cable news understanding, a sub cable news understanding of, 
you know, a presidential election in which he is one of the two major party nominees. And I think that's incredible. Some of the scenes we see of him talking to his family and his advisors, after that first debate, one of his kids says something to him like, you know, my theory is people are looking at you. They saw you in that first debate and they said, okay, you know, we're frustrated with Obama (laughs) as president, um, but we're not sure if we can vote for this guy. And this is where you have to confirm you can vote for me. Why does he need his son to tell this? Him was this was a humanizing moment because you could tell that Mitt, Ro- Mitt Romney, what he was really thinking, he's kind of nodding passive aggressively, and what he's really thinking is just shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I have a whole, I have a whole army of people I pay six, six or seven figures <laughs> to to tell me the same crap. I don't need to hear it from you. So you know the movie ends on a downbeat note with Romney and his wife returning to their home, and Romney sits in a chair and he stares into space presumably for the next, until he became a senator. And it's a beautiful comeback story, you know? In America's hour of need, along came this principled Republican to reclaim his party. I was thinking it'd be really funny if he primaried Trump in 2020 somehow and then lost. That would be so (laughs) wonderful. So what do you say if we, what do you think you say in a concession speech? Let me read you what I have here at Susan, thank you. Uh, just called President Obama to congratulate him on his victory. His supporters and his campaign also deserve congratulations. I wish all of them well, particularly the President, the First Lady, and their daughters. This is a time of great challenges for America, and I pray that the President will be successful in guiding the nation. Holland's listening. <laughs> no, I was following. Okay. I was following. Okay. Shall I send it to you? This? Do you want me to send it to yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. Shall I do that? Yeah. Right. Then we can. What's going on? We're writing a concession speech. So this film, uh, in conclusion, you know, did not have a great impact on us. Um, but, you know, on this show, it's, it's more the journey than the destination. And I think that, you know, it fits squarely. What was this movie even called? It's just called it's Mitt. It's called Mitt, yeah. I think Mitt fits squarely. Because you're on a first name basis That's with him right, after watching it. You're getting to know him. Yeah. I think it fits kind of squarely within, you know, what you might call the small p political way of thinking about politics, mm-hmm. which is... You know, pretty much what dominates on cable news and in it's it's the kind of guiding way that that pundits speak about, you know, politics in every country. It's we have that phenomenon here in Canada, but in in the United States, it's especially acute. And this this film was just another kind of masterclass and how utterly vapid that is and how useless it is. If you actually want this to be about anything, if you actually if you actually care about anything, if you're not just invested in it, in it as a as a spectacle. And it is amazing to me that so many people who cover politics professionally, this is how they want to think about this. Like, I'm sure Nate Silver would really enjoy this movie. You know, I'm sure that David Brooks would really enjoy it. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if David Brooks, you know, wrote a column about this movie, about how it showed like the immense personal toll. We don't often oh, talk God, about the yeah. immense personal toll of public life takes on the people who deign to be brave enough to try and represent us or something. But as the 2020 primaries are already getting going, 2016 kind of broke the cycle a little bit. But no, I take that back. It actually didn't break it. It just bent it temporarily. And we're right back to where we were because as a bunch of Democrats toss their hats into the ring, we're already getting you know, a return to this this kind of vapid commentary where politics really just is purely about aesthetics and we're supposed to delight in that and relish in that. And that's supposed to be the mark of the adult mode of talking about politics. 
And, you know, there's so many, there've been so many examples of already, but I don't know if you saw Nate Silver, a friend of the show, Nate Silver's tweet about uh, Amy Klobuchar, where he said, everything about her campaign revolves around the Midwest. Electability is a big asset. Great insight. It's not so, wrong. So is proximity to Iowa. So we've got, uh, we're halfway through the tweet. Um, we've got the Midwest, front of the show. <laughs> we've got electability, big thing in politics. And then we've got geography, proximity to Iowa. And, you know, if she can get more votes than the other <laughs> right, opponents do, right. that will be a big help. But, but, but you know, Nate is, Nate is is a numbers guy. He's someone who brings <laughs> empirical rigor to politics. So the second half of the tweet takes a bit of a... Bit of a yeah. turn. I mean, don't forget, Nate called the 2012 election for Obama. I mean, who could have done that? <laughs> I mean, it, let's flip a coin right now. <laughs> but so the, in the second half of the tweet, he, he injects some some real nuance into this. He says, she's liable to run as a beer track. That's in quotations. Beer track candidate drawing contrast with more liberal wine track candidates from the coast. Oh, damn. And then in brackets, P.S. Beto is on the craft beer track. Because um, he's a hipster. Yes, and this was this was uh, just a few days after Nate. He tweeted, you know, only semi-joking question: Would Beto be the first hipster president? Um, and then he and Josh Marshall from Talking Points Memo, forgetting about Howard Taft, <laughs> he and he and Josh Marshall got into this really earnest debate about like how to taxonomize hipsterdom. <laughs> and I mean, there are new rock bottoms on Twitter every day, but you know, this was another one. Anyway, further to the theme of, uh, you know, this uh, beer track candidate, Amy Klobuchar, who uh, Nate Silver was speaking about, uh, there was a column by David Leonard in the New York Times called Trump's Nightmare Opponents. Do you want to take a guess at who they are? Oh. Who, who do you think, if you, if you were Donald Trump, who are you really terrified? Who are you shaking in your boots, just binging coffee in late night strategy, strategy sessions with your advisors to figure out how do we beat these unassailable indefatigable political dynamos who um, comes to mind uh my guess uh uh hillary clinton again <laughs> <laughs> so that's a pretty good guess um but you know david leonard you know we're we're amateurs we do we're just we just do a podcast you know he's a professional he writes for a big grown-up newspaper he identifies trump's nightmare opponents as uh sherrod brown and amy klobuchar okay this is because uh they are both as he calls them middle class fighters Anyways, I feel as if I've read this column a million times before because this style of, of writing about politics is almost paint by the numbers. But the, the main argument of this piece is that uh, these two, frankly, very outsider figures for the Democratic nomination, th that they fill this kind of niche that he just kind of arbitrarily, you know, constructs around a bunch of received wisdom. So I'm just going to read, uh, read a few lines from this. So if Democrats wanted to identify their best hope for beating Trump, what would that candidate look like? Above all, it would be a candidate good at persuading Americans that he or she was on their side. On their side against the forces causing the stagnation of American living standards. More specifically, this candidate would be someone who could persuade swing voters of this allegiance. Swing voters still exist. Enough Americans switched from backing Barack Obama in 2012 to Trump in 2016 to House Democrats in 2018 to help decide those elections. I understand why some Democratic activists are instead drawn to the idea of victory through turnout. It offers the promise of avoiding any political compromise. The problem is there are virtually no examples of Democrats winning close races without emphasizing persuasion. The 2018 attempts in Florida, Georgia, and Texas all fell short. I mean... Also no precedent, of course, for Democrats winning getting a lot of turnout. 
<laughs> I mean, I mean, when I say that the categories are arbitrary, right? I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It's so the, the it's, set, not, it's not like a collapse in turnout the, the, has ever sunk a Democratic candidate. The, the setup is that Americans want somebody that that can be seen to be on their side. Okay. Um, and note that he doesn't show me the line. Note that he doesn't say um, the candidate is somebody who is on American side. He says a candidate good at persuading Americans that he or she is on because this is. This is a spectacle. Yeah. Which publication was this in again? Uh, the Global Paper of Record, the New York Times. Okay. And so, uh, sorry, it, it continues. Don't want to be unfair to David Leonard here. You know, he then proceeds with this kind of, uh, this received wisdom that he's constructed that's just plucked from, you know, three examples where, you know, so Florida, Georgia, Georgia and Texas. So three recent races where Democratic candidates just narrowly fell short of victory. And he's turning this into an argument for why this applies to the entire country. So then he adds, um, but wait, there's a bit of a turn here. Yet progressives shouldn't despair because swing voters are quite progressive, especially on economic issues. For years, we've been hearing about a kind of fantasy swing voter conjured by political pundits and corporate chieftains, of whom this guy certainly is not, who is socially liberal and economically conservative, as many pundits and chieftains are. The actual swing voter leads decidedly left on economics in favor of tax increases on the rich, opposed to Medicare cuts, and skeptical of big business. Still, these swing voters don't think of themselves as radical. They are typically patriotic and religious. Many think of themselves as moderate, and strange as it sounds, many thought of Trump as a moderate in 2016. When Republicans can paint a Democrat as an out-of-touch elitist like they did with Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, Al Gore, or Michael Dukakis, the Republican often wins these voters. When Democrats can instead come off as middle-class fighters, they tend to win. And so swing voters are more progressive than you think they are. But they're they, also patriotic and religious. They're more progressive than you think they are, but campaigning on progressive ideas is counterproductive. Well, because the, the point is just you have to have somebody that, that can play the right kind of character. And he's about to tell us what that okay. is. This is my favorite part of the piece. Um, so he names, uh, he names Amy Klobuchar and, and Sherrod Brown. And he says, he describes them this way. They are both Midwestern senators. Klobuchar, who launched her campaign Sunday for Minnesota. Brown, who hasn't yet decided whether to run from Ohio. They both have a populist folksiness to them. And no, those aren't racial code words. Obama also won swing voters thanks in part to populist folksiness. About the power of large corporations, Klobuchar has said, the public is at breaking point. She talks constantly about lowering health care costs. <laughs> Brown talks constantly about restoring the dignity of work. But... <laughs> Both have also smartly avoided some ideas that play better with liberal Twitter than swing voters, like the fever dream of eliminating private health insurance, right? That thing that uh, polls well with uh, even a majority of Republicans. Anyway, so what I love about this is he, he describes these two as populists, right? And then he goes on to explain how what their strength is, is that they're good at pandering by saying, like, we need to, you know, lower health care costs and corporations shucks the public's the breaking point but then he basically says in the next paragraph but the good thing is they don't really mean it yeah <laughs> you know i'll just note that he doesn't uh, doesn't seem to mention any of the stuff coming out out about uh how amy klobuchar treats her staff which certainly <laughs> does not look uh good and I, but i think that the key phrase here is the phrase populist folksiness so the whole article is just building to this extremely vague kind of personality trait that has to do with seeming down to earth but also not seeming to to really lean one way or the other he's describing bill clinton i mean basically yeah that is basically it arguments like this are so just entrapped by received wisdom 
I assume that some readers find this quite profound. Um, and if I'd have read this in, you know, 2008 or something, I might have thought that it was a really, it was really deep political analysis. But it's incredible that the default for so many pundits is still to fall back on inventing new kind of arbitrary political taxonomies to understand voters. And just the whole way through, really not being convinced in any meaningful way that politics is about ideology. You know, he, he dismisses it in the first part of the article, the idea that, you know, Democrats should focus on getting turnout and trying to play to their base in any way, having any kind of actually coherent message. The strength is in having a message that people like, but which is kind of sufficiently devoid of meaning that you can capture enough people. The appeal of an article like this is basically the same as the appeal of the Mitt documentary. Absolutely. Flattering the reader or viewer into thinking that they're being granted access behind the curtain because they're smarter and they know more about the process and how the process really works than the groups. Right, and they're so they're so in on this that they can actually remove themselves from, you know, the the fetters of partisanship, which is just for, you know, the trivial and simple-minded anyway. You know, they can take a kind of disinterested view you know uh that's what this is it's got it's got numbers it's got facts it's a it's a real grown-up adult take on politics anyways if the punditry so far is any indication nothing has really changed since uh since 2016 the political class has not really been you know shaken into revising any of its kind of core assumptions about how this works and uh I just have a very hard time imagining, um, obviously speculation is dangerous, but I have a hard time imagining the the Democratic primaries especially are going to follow a script like the one that, you know, this New York Times columnist expects them to. In a post-Trump age where somebody like that can uh, can defy all these people um, and defy all of their assumptions about how politics works and how it should work, um, it's really time to stop writing columns like this. And that's going to become particularly stark, I think, the divide between reality and the fantasy world that big punditry likes to construct. The divide is going to become increasingly stark when you start to have Democratic candidates who are actively running against the party's own leadership and, and donor class. Um, and uh, there's, it's quite probably going to be a... Cory Booker. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Incidentally, after we recorded last, did you see his thing where he compared uh, his charter school push to Malcolm X? I love him. <laughs> I actually hope he sticks around for a while. Okay, so with Mitt Romney, I'd love him to be a team player. Uh, possibly he won't be. I'm surprised he acted so quickly. Uh, I gave him an endorsement. I was happy that he won. In Utah, I have great popularity in Utah. I love the people of Utah. I did something for them that nobody else would have done that has to do with their parks, as you know. That was a big day, a big, a big thing. And we did that for a, a very special person who is now going to be retiring after 42 years. You know who I'm talking about. Anyway, in the coming weeks, we'll probably try to, uh, you know, pull out of U.S. politics just a little bit because uh, it's going to be a really long slog over the next year. <laughs> More than a year. Mm -hmm. But if you want to hear more hot takes about, you know, the Democratic primaries uh, and you're not a Patreon subscriber, uh, we did have a really fun episode last week uh, talking about Cory Booker's run for uh, the mayoralty of Newark, which was something that we didn't know a lot of a lot about. And my colleague from Jacobin, Branco, joined us uh, and it was a lot of fun. I'm Team Sharp James, by the way. <laughs>
Anyway, that's enough politics for me. Um, Good riddance, PU. Yeah. I spend I spend the days so immersed in this stuff. I really do need to decompress. Something I'm looking forward to reading is something you've just published. That's right. It um, makes a, a, a beautiful gift. It's uh, got nothing to do with politics. Well, everything is political, <laughs> isn't it? I'm sure some politics creep through. But yes, folks, I have a new book out written by myself and my colleague, Justin DeClue. It's called The Important Cinema Club Journal. It's from Will's other podcast. It's a compendium of stuff we've been thinking about lately. Lots of articles, lots of interviews about strange and interesting corners of the cinema, from the highest of art to the lowest of trash. I'm looking forward to the trash, especially, I have to say. There's something in there for everybody. <laughs> uh, you know, we've got articles on Charlie Chaplin, articles on Jean-Luc Godard, also articles about Bruce Lee clones, <laughs> articles about the guy who directed A Talking Cat. <laughs> we've got an interview with the family of Orson Welles's cinematographer. <laughs> There's something in there for everyone, folks. And I'm happy to say that we conquered the Amazon charts this week. Uh, we were, uh, according to Amazon, the number one hot new release in movie books. I ha I'm not sure yet how many actual units that translates into, but uh, the next goal is the New York Times bestseller You're, you're going to have a house like the Romneys soon. I think we can do it, folks. Mike Linus Nation, let's get my book on the New York Times bestseller charts. Now watch this drive. <laughs> oh,